Welcome to In The Money with Shannon Rusick from Flyer Financial Technologies, the company that builds cutting-edge technology designed to solve asset and wealth management firms' toughest trading workflows. In this podcast, we help advisors and asset managers understand how technology is transforming the wealth tech sector. We'll cover how to leverage technology for faster, smarter investment decisions, megatrends, and more. Shannon draws from years of experience in the industry, along with guest experts to explore the biggest challenges and opportunities in the wealth tech game. Now, on to the show. Welcome to In The Money. I'm your host, Shannon Rosick. I'm fortunate enough to be joined today by the incomparable Gina Sanchez, CEO of Chantico Global, regular contributor on CNBC and chief market strategist for Lido Advisors. In this episode, we're tackling what it takes to have a dynamic and successful approach to asset allocation and portfolio management. It goes way beyond just stock picking. So let's jump in. Gina, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Shannon. I'm excited to be here. And this is these are certainly interesting times to be talking about the markets. Absolutely. But I have to say, first off, you really have an incredible resume. Educated at Harvard and Stanford, you're deeply involved in financial engineering program at UCLA's Graduate Business School. You spent over a decade as the chief market strategist at Lido Advisors, all while managing Chantico Global and your risk analytics company. And obviously, you're a contributor on CNBC. Wow. (laughs) So I'm going to start with the hardest question first. Tell me about your background and why you ultimately do what you do today. Um, well, you know, I, I obviously started my career uh, in the financial services going straight to J.P. Morgan. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that I started there was because, you know, when I went to Harvard, um, it was it was I was coming from South Texas. I was taking on quite a bit of student debt and, you know, I was most concerned about how I was going to pay that all back. (laughs) And, um, you know, the, when I looked around and I looked at sort of what interested me and what interested me tended to be actually development economics. So what makes economies develop? Um, and I, uh, eventually found kind of a, a, an area for that that also happened to pay quite well, which was emerging market debt. Uh, and so I actually went to go work for JP Morgan, um, and covering, you know, the Mexican money markets. And I went from there to Brady bonds to pretty much every crisis in the world, uh, and, uh, eventually landed at American Century doing the strategic asset allocation funds, managing the emerging market bond portfolio in within that portfolio um but very quickly i started spreading my wings i started uh you know doing the the currency overlay i started doing um the the uh country rotation sector rotation um and and you know after a few years i found myself as portfolio manager of the asset allocation funds for american century and growing up was was there always an interest in finance in your life? I, you know, most kids are interested in, in ponies or being an, an uh-huh. astronaut, but you had a very specific path. Was there anything that kind of triggered that growing up, that interest? You know, I wouldn't say that it was it was linked to my youth, but not in the way that that you might think. You know, as you know, I, I grew up uh, in in a fairly kind of modest home in South Texas, and the area itself was actually quite poor relative to the rest of the world. So to be fair, I didn't really know that I was poor. I just thought everybody was like this. Um, and, you know, for us, budgeting and, you know, sort of keeping the household 
uh, balance sheet was first and foremost because it was part of survival. So, you know, every single decision to go out to eat, you know, entailed a, a mathematics <laughs> a juncture of, of ensuring that, that we could pay for it. And so, you know, I think I was just always budget oriented as a result. Um, in school, I excelled um, in math, I excelled uh, in accounting. And, you know, those, those, you know, those talents lent themselves certainly to financial analytics. And then, you know, it, it, it kind of paved my path. And so, but, but a lot of it really kind of stemmed from just making sure that we could, we could make it to the end of the month on my mom's paycheck as a teacher. Well, that's an amazing story. And it's obviously served you well because you wear multiple hats now. And so I have to ask, how do you prioritize each day as a CEO, a chief market strategist, a CNBC contributor, board member? Honestly, uh -huh. you're really an inspiration in an industry that still needs more women in the C-suite at the end of the day. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think one of the reasons that I you know, take on these challenges is partially because I do believe it's important to, you know, sort of keep that door open for other people behind me, for other women behind me and other minorities behind me. And so, you know, it, it's, it's, um, you know, to the extent that I can accomplish everything that I'm trying to accomplish. And that is also important to me is, is I don't, I don't like to take on things and I don't, uh, generally will say no to things that are just sort of beyond my capacity. But, you know, I do have a maybe a, a bigger capacity than most. And and part of that, I think, comes from kind of a lot of time management, for sure. Um, and, um, and, you know, really just approaching my day in, in pieces um, and sort of, uh, you know, I, I start my day finding out what's happened in the markets um, so that I understand what my clients need. Lido Advisors is one of my clients uh, for Chantico Global. And so, you know, I have, uh, you know, a series of clients among which are, you know, San Bernardino County, uh, you know, uh, UJA, uh, United Jewish um, uh, Association, uh, UJA Federation of New York, um, Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. And so we will, you know, as a team, well, as a person, you know, as individually, I'll sit down and go through the markets each morning um, and ensure that I know what's happening so that I can have conversations with my clients about, you know, where the, the risks are forming in the markets and what's driving the markets. And it's really important that that element of what drives markets is really what kind of gets me up every morning. Every single one of my clients and everything that I do connects to that. Um, and, and the first question that I'm trying to answer is, you know, what are the, what is the market environment and is that market environment shifting? And do you need to make a move or is the market environment pretty much the same? You know, a lot of people want to have, you know, to, to take action where natural, to, you know, type, a lot of type A's come to this industry. And so there's this need to constantly do something. And sometimes that's not what you need to do. Sometimes what you need to do is you need to write it out um, and ensure that, that the information hasn't changed. And as long as the information hasn't changed, you keep your trades on. And so part of what I do is, is help, you know, I, I like to joke that, that what I do as a, as a business is investment therapy. I try to, <laughs> I try to ensure that, that my clients stay in their good trades and don't dump them and that they don't, um, you know, that they don't sell out when they really need to be holding. Um, and, and so, you know, that's, that's the, the majority of my day is figuring out what's driving the markets and then holding my clients' hands through it. 
So obviously your your love for the markets it probably has to do with Chantico Global's origins. And I'll have to dust off the cobwebs a little bit, but if my memory serves me correctly from my classics courses in college, that's actually the goddess of um of wealth and um you know a prosperity from what I understand and really rooted in Aztec mythology. Are, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chantico, you know, I tell you, naming your company might be the hardest thing any <laughs> entrepreneur has to do, by the way. It's it's it is just fraught with all sorts of messaging. Uh, and you know, when I I you know went through as I went through my career and I was um organizing, I was basically, you know. Um, negotiating the spin out of my company from Rubini Global Economics, um, that spin out took about six months to get through kind of all the legal machinations that happen in a negotiation. And I spent every day of those six months really, really thinking about what I wanted to name the company. <laughs> and, it, and it took all six months. I think I came to the idea on the last day. I spun out in, in January of 2012. And around that time, you know, everybody was talking about the end of the world and the Mayan calendar. And that was that was sort of the flavor of the day. And I thought, you know, well, you know, how could I link to that idea? And Mayan gods are particularly can be very, very hard to pronounce and hard to spell. And so from a marketing perspective, I kind of got shot down on most of those ideas. Um, and I have both Mayan and Aztec heritage. And so I went to my Aztec heritage to sort of find um, some some good ideas. Chantico was an interesting one. Well, first of all, it's a simple name. It has three syllables. You know, these, these, many of these, uh, um, Aztec gods and goddesses have very multisyllabic names. So, you know, you can have Quetzalcoatl and also the, the really weird diphthongs, you know, and, uh, and, and so this one was very simple, but she also had an interesting history. She's actually the goddess of fire. Um, and Chantico, uh, was known to be somewhat mischievous and she was punished by the maize god, which was the corn god. Um, and she was turned into a dog uh, for, for breaking fast with a, um, uh, with a banned substance, paprika. Um, and so she was turned into a dog and as a dog um, tended to guard the house and the, and the household um, sort of the house and the household. And she, um, she tended to stay in front of the, the home hearth, which is the, the fires of the home hearth. Um, and because the fires were associated with gold uh, uh, in, in Aztec, mythology. Uh, she was also seen as not only the protector of the house and the household, but also the protector of household wealth. And it seemed like a good and fitting story for, you know, what I wanted to do with my company, which is that I wanted to basically guard, um, you know, the, the, the wealth of the institutions um, that I was, you know, tasked with, with working with. And um, so she seemed like an interesting character. And, um, and not that hard to spell. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is by far one of the most interesting origin stories I've ever heard. And you are like an onion. <laughs> You're dropping just nuggets <laughs> everywhere between your resume and then saying you have, you know, mine and Aztec descent. Just incredible. <laughs> so, I mean, this this could totally be like a Joe Rogan three hour podcast. But <laughs> I but I digress. <laughs> I want to dive into um, your firm's approach, actually, to asset allocation um, and how it's different and what investment management philosophies are really driving it. 
Well, you know, I tell you, so much asset allocation is really informed by, you know, traditional mean variance optimization. And and the problem with that is that you have to make an assumption about what each asset class is going to do and how much risk each asset class is going to make. And then you feed that into an optimizer that keeps trying out different portfolios that get you to the highest return for a given risk or the lowest return for a necessary uh, the lowest risk for a necessary return that's called mean variance optimization and the problem with that is that if you make any mistakes anywhere in those assumptions it will maximize that mistake i tend to call them error maximizers rather than uh, risk minimizers <laughs> and and you know that's the biggest challenge i think and the other problem is is that those kinds of that approach tends to also give you these really weird corner solutions, like you should put it all in emerging market equity. Well, that isn't always the best portfolio. And so right. sort of coming up with a portfolio that makes sense really requires uh, a bit more nuance than that. And so what what we've done um, is we've basically taken the world and said, you know, instead of using every single data point in order to forecast one future outcome, let's instead try to split the world into multiple little uh, groups of data points um, that are specific to different environments. And if we can split and filter the data into smaller groups, our chances of forecasting from that group as to what will happen if those particular, um, uh, you know, uh, th those if that particular environment manifests again, then we have a better shot of understanding what might happen. And, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, looking at equities um, in rising rate environments versus falling rate environments gives you two very, very different um, clumps of expected returns. And, you know, thinking about it intuitively, it makes perfect sense. Why should equities do well when interest rates are rising? And of course, they will do very well when interest rates are, are falling. That makes a lot of sense. And yet we tend to lose that common sense when we throw everything into a black box MVO um, and say, okay, now just tell me which you prefer. And so what we spend our time doing is we spend our time understanding what are the environments that, in, that asset classes do well in? What are the environments that they do poorly in? And then let's try to um, understand and figure out which, which environment we're going towards. And we're not very cute about how we think about that. We don't say, are, are, is growth going to be 3.2%? That's not the question. The main question we're asking people is, do you think growth is going to be higher or lower than it is today? Interestingly, most people will give you a similar answer. Most there, there is a general consensus, um, within uh, investors about whether or not you're going to go up or down, whether or not the number will be positive or negative. And because we simplify the question, we also increase the your forecast success. Forecasting uh, a particular number like the return for the S&P 500, the, the likelihood of getting that is actually very, very low. But the likelihood of, of, of forecasting whether or not inflation is going to be higher or lower Believe it or not, the likelihood is quite high. With some of our partners like Oxford Economics, you know, their hit rate on that kind of, uh, of measure is somewhere around 95%. That's wow. pretty decent. That basically tells us that intuitively we kind of have a good sense 
We may be surprised at the magnitude of the number, but we generally know what direction we're going in. And if we know what direction we're going in, we probably can figure out what kind of environment we're going to be in. And if we've made that much of the problem simpler, then we have a pretty decent chance of figuring out the asset classes that perform well in that environment. And so we just take really hard problems and we make them into simpler problems where you have a decent shot at success. And if we can do that, we can actually clear away a lot of the intrigue and mystery around investing. And that's really what we're trying to do is we're trying to reduce the problem into something that people have a shot at getting. And talk to me a little bit about why a typical investor would need advanced strategies like this and who Chantico ultimately serves. So Chantico Global is serving uh, pension funds, foundations, endowments, multifamily offices, uh, registered investment advisors. So it's a pretty broad array uh, uh, of of investment types. Um, and each of those investors obviously has different you know, desires and concerns and Quite frankly, just a different relationship with the money that they are, uh, you know, that 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 they are um, uh, managing, and so you know, a, as you know, we we are all stewards of our capital, and and what kind of guides that stewardship is usually what our goals are. So you know, you think about a pension fund or a foundation; th- those may have two very very different guidelines as to what they're trying to accomplish with their money. Uh, you know, a pension fund is really, you know tasked with paying the promised pension benefits that they have made. Um, a foundation um, is usually generally tasked with solving some important social problem, and, and the investment is really a tool for aiding in that. Um, and, and so, you know, how you approach each of those can be quite different. But, but at the end of the day, once we can understand what the target is, um, we can generally lay the world out into the states of the world where the portfolio you've, you've designed will do well and the portfolio that you've designed will do poorly. Um, we can also help our, um, we can also help our clients uh, build better portfolios. So, you know, if, if we have a pretty good idea of what kind of environment we're heading into, um, we might, you know, uh, our models might suggest that some changes could be in order uh, in order to improve your success in, in those environments. Um, and so, you know, e- each of the, the different kinds of, like I said, you know, each each investor type um, can be different in terms of their goal setting. But at the end of the day, once you've set your goal, we're just trying to help you achieve that goal, right? And so we're going to keep measuring and saying, are you on, are you on target to meet your success? Are it, will your journey be smooth or will your journey be bumpy? And what are the chances of making it to your final destination? Right. And, and, you know, we think about all of this in terms of an investment journey. And so, you know, all those environments I described, that's a, that's an investment map. We basically lay out an investment map that says, here's all the different options you have in order to, you know, that, that, that are likely to occur on your journey. Let's talk about, you know, what your plans are in each of those environments so that you can get there. And as you may know, uh, Flyer actually also works with Lido Advisors. So shout out to them. And you've spent oh. years as their chief market strategist. So tell us a little bit about your work for Lido and how you think about market strategy for them. 
Absolutely. You know, Lido advisors, like many registered advisors, you know, are really, they, they, they serve many different kinds of clients. And so they have to create literally a portfolio for different uh, risk tolerances, for different goals, for different outcomes. And so that's the challenge um, that Lido and, and any uh, RIA has is, is determining how best to build uh, all weather portfolios and multiple portfolios that will perform. Um, and so, you know, we help them, uh, uh, you know, think about what are, what does that efficient frontier look like? What is a conservative portfolio relative to an aggressive portfolio? Lido Advisors also spends quite a bit of time thinking about um, derivatives and how derivatives can enhance a portfolio and reduce risk in order to ensure uh, that their uh, client base uh, can participate in the ups while shielding themselves from the downs. And so that kind of uh, of, of, of insurance type strategy, um, can make a, an enormous difference, um, you know, in terms of making your, making your goal and, and getting to your destination. And so, you know, what, what I spend a lot of time doing with Lido advisors is just helping them understand, um, the market environment, um, uh, communicating to clients, um, where we are and where we might be going. Um, what are the key pieces of information that they should be paying attention to as opposed to all the information that comes, comes at them every single day. So really, again, it's about reducing uh, the enormity of the information that's out there into key pieces of information um, and putting out a perspective as to what we believe is going to happen as a firm and how we've positioned the portfolio in order to meet those needs. And asset allocation can obviously be very personal to each client, you know, based on their goals, where they are in their financial journey. Do you have concerns over scalability? I've been hearing this topic a whole lot, especially this year at events and conferences about how firms can manage portfolios at scale. And are you leveraging certain technology to achieve this? Do you have concerns over it? Uh, how are you considering this right now? Well, obviously, technology is the backbone of scale, but but even before that, it really comes down to process. So you have to build a process that lends itself to technology. Otherwise, as a business, as an advisory business, you won't scale. Um, and so, you know, the notion, for example, of creating individualized portfolios one at a time, that is inherently unscalable. Right. <clears throat> so you have to think about how do I create a process that will ensure that I can a recognize what my clients goals are and what their what their limitations are and be able to categorize those limitations into broader um, buckets so that I can uh, at least start with uh, a portfolio that's in the ballpark and then and then take some customization from there. And so, um, you know, th th there are many, many different firms kind of approach that um, in different ways, um, uh, you know, how you build the portfolio. And then once you've built the portfolio, how you effectively manage that portfolio and trade that portfolio, all of those elements require um, technology because, you know, the, the world has become quite complex. Um, and so, you know, w without technology, for example, to build a portfolio, without technology uh, to keep track of your uh, approved lists, without technology to ensure that your compliance is in order and working smoothly, um, and, and then you need additional technology to ensure um, that you are able to sort of 
trade your clients' portfolios or make changes to your portfolios in ways that are fair to all of your clients and not um, you know, favoring one client over another. All of these are requirements that are out there in the marketplace and that, quite frankly, need a technological solution. Um, you know, we've gotten well beyond what can be done uh, in Excel spreadsheets. And, you know, as the market continues to mature and as the wealth market continues to mature and continues to get uh, more and more sort of it's building in its complexity because quite frankly, investors are demanding that complexity. It's not just a simple world where you can just throw in a few mutual funds and call it a day and play golf, right? <laughs> you're, you're, you know, you're, 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 you're asking your clients to pay you and, and they're wanting a bigger and better service for that. And the only way to do that is going to be with technology um, and, you know, with the right staff, but, you know, I, I would I would say that it starts that that world, even being able to utilize technology and all the different solutions that are out there, um, like Flyer, um, you need to have a process that lends itself to to scaling. Absolutely. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your longstanding role as a contributor on CNBC. I absolutely love the segment three buys and a bail on the exchange on CNBC. And I come from a media world as well. And um used to being on camera and interviewing folks all over the world in financial services. So a lot of respect for what you do and, and, and getting up there and talking about this on a regular basis. And, you know, what is your approach to preparing for these? Is it, is it like you said, waking up every day and it's all driven by market trends? Is it interest in particular segments? You know, talk us through that. Well, you know, I think, for for that for that particular and I love that segment by the way this has been my favorite and I've I've done a few shows over the years you know I've done talking numbers trading nation um, three buys and a bail has definitely been uh, my favorite and part of the reason is because it allows me to explore themes rather than just stock stories it's easy I think to just kind of dive into a stock story or an earnings story and say here's what happened in the earnings um, but what I'm trying to do is take a step back and put these stocks into some kind of thematic picture um, so that you know viewers can start to understand well what tends to perform well in a rising rate environment and what are the elements that you're looking for are you looking for just a good valuation are you looking for um, you know a strong margin uh, expansion um, are you looking for dividend growth right and and what stocks tend to provide those elements or what happens when you go into a recession? Um, how do you recession-proof your portfolios? And what are the elements of defensiveness um, that you are looking for? Um, uh, you know, what happens when you have high oil prices and inflation, right? All of these questions are, are sort of questions that we can understand as individuals. You know, prices are going up everywhere. Um, if I'm going to make an investment in the market, can I make an investment that benefits from the fact that prices are rising? Right. Um, and can I, should I stay away from certain companies where they're very exposed to certain prices rising? And so, you know, that whole story is really how do I buy into the themes that are really the most important themes of the day? So for me, it's a thematic piece. It's always been a thematic piece. And it is about sort of explaining to investors and educating investors what are the elements um, of stocks and how do you break down stocks into different components and evaluate them for a different theme. 
um, and and for a given theme. And so that's that's really what I'm trying to accomplish on the show. Um, and you know, hopefully at the end of the day, I might uh, get Kelly to giggle, uh, and that's part of the part of the uh, the fun of the show. I've actually, believe it or not, I've I've known Kelly Evans for over 10 years. I actually, when I was at Rubini Global Economics, um, I was uh, uh, sent to London um, in 2012. And I spent um, all of 2012 as a guest host on Worldwide Exchange when it was shot out of London. And Kelly Evans uh, and Ron Westgate uh, were my hosts. And so I spent a, a full hour on the desk with Kelly uh, doing those shows. So we got to know each other pretty well over that year. And then she came back to New York and lo and behold, we've come back around and they've put us back together. Uh, so I'm, I'm really happy to be working with Kelly again. She she is uh, remarkable and she's very intelligent and just incredibly um, poised on air. And I think that's really important. Oh, absolutely. So I want to go back. You mentioned um, how you kind of center this around themes. So obviously big themes today, recession with inflation. This feels like new territory a little bit. You know, any econ class would tell you in a recession, you'd usually expect a fall in the inflation rate due to lower demand and lower economic activity. So Mm -hmm. are you adjusting your strategies to deal with this or just really staying the course? Well, I've been banging this drum for a while. You know, the the fact is, is that the inflation and the tenor of inflation that we're experiencing right now is inflation that's coming uh, from conflict, right? It's coming from the Ukraine really dramatically. And so that inflation manifests in terms of energy prices, which have finally started to fall. But for a while, they were very high. And those energy prices feed into so many other prices. I mean, energy is an input into so many industries and also food prices, you know, because of what, you know, Ukraine is uh, a major exporter, a major wheat exporter. And with those with those wheat exports potentially at risk, you're talking about some pretty serious food demand in the world. Um, And, you know, we're going to have to satisfy that demand elsewhere. And very likely it's going to create higher prices. That kind of inflation, it's not the kind of inflation that interest rates tend to tend to affect. Right. Interest rates tend to affect inflation that comes from excess credit creation. So I'm a bank. I keep lending people money. They keep buying stuff. And so if I raise interest rates, then I might, you know, then people might demand fewer loans. Then they will naturally curtail their spending as a result of having less access to capital. Um, and, and that's, that's, you know, that sort of cre- credit creation inflation. That's not what this is. And so Fed, the Fed raising interest rates, while I think it's been a long time coming and we needed to normalize interest rates, we're doing it in the most painful way possible, which is to say that we're increasing the cost of capital, but it's not decreasing the actual cost of the, of the commodity prices that we're being forced to pay. And so we're being forced to pay on both sides now. And it's bringing on a recession. And so we're also going to lose jobs and wages in the process while that that commodity price cost isn't going away. And so I do think that this is going to be, you know, reminiscent of and maybe not quite as as terrible as the 1970s and early 80s. But I do think it will be somewhat reminiscent of that feel, um, which is that you have a a sort of slowing economy um, and those dollars are buying less and less and less. And the Fed is really trying to uh, control that inflation. But interest rates do not control commodity price inflation. And that's just a fact. 
So any good news you can share? (laughs) (laughs) I used to joke when I worked with Nouriel Rubini that at Rubini Global Economics, we deliver bad news with a smile. And I feel like I still do that. (laughs) But it's just what it is. It's this is life. Take your medicine, kids. Um, (laughs) But no, there there is some good news. Here's the good news of all of this is that all of these things are temporary. Um, The inflation that we experienced early on was really, uh, you know, early as the pandemic began to reopen, was really about these supply chain constraints. A lot of that is starting to work itself out. And I anticipate that by the end of this year, we will probably have worked through a lot of, you know, what the new supply chain is going to look like. And and by that, I mean, you know, a lot of companies are spending time thinking, do we really want to have to import from far away? Should we start nearshoring? Should we start onshoring? Now, that in and itself is inflationary, but it's inflationary in a good way. It's inflationary in a way that actually creates jobs and wages in the United States, and that will naturally push up demand as well. And so while I think that people talk about the fact that onshoring is inflationary, it will also effectively um, create a lot of, of, of value and, and a lot of, you know, demand and activity in the economy. So I, I think that, 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 net net will be a good a good form of inflation um and and so so much of that sort of supply chain disruption is working itself through we're getting our hands on the goods and services that we need and the stuff that's slow to come you know like the tesla i ordered i feel like so long ago um <laughs> you know uh, i'm starting to have second thoughts um uh, you know th- that that will work itself out this uh conflict inflation Theoretically, it's temporary. But one thing that we do know is that if this war sort of moves towards being a frozen war, um, is that it could just sort of simmer in the background. There are wars that have been going on for 20 years that we don't even talk about anymore. Um, and, and this one, the only reason that it continues in the headlines is because the output of Ukraine is meaningful to the global economy and the sanctions on Russia and Russian exports and particularly Russian energy is meaningful to the global economy. Um, And so this frozen war can have long-lasting impacts. If it can be brought to a resolution, it will be very, very positive and beneficial. If it's not brought to a resolution, well, what's going to happen? The world is going to adapt. Eventually, we will see more output um, from the Saudis, although the Saudis are not um, currently helping the problem that much. (laughs) Um, but, But we know that they can. Um, and we know that high oil prices are not in their best interest either. So while they want to, um, you know, w- w- while they were, you know, at somewhat, you know, at, you know, in a rift with the United States and, and they were not being overly helpful, at the end of the day, that's cutting off their nose to spite their face. They will also have to bring oil prices down um, because it does ultimately hurt global demand. And so. That, that will eventually start to resolve itself. We will find oil from other sources. Um, you know, wheat and, and, uh, food production will have to sort itself out. Um, and, you know, luckily we are, you know, one of the great, uh, side effects, I would say, from this terrible pandemic, 
um, has been this incredible boom um, in biosciences. We've just plowed trillions of public dollars um, into research that will result in not only healthier people, um, but also the biosciences in general. So how you grow food, how you, you know, uh, the, the, the follow-ons and the knock-ons of the, of the research dollars we've just put in. I tend to liken it to, um, the, uh, the, the monies that were plowed into the U.S. highway system in the 1950s when we thought a bomb was going to drop, uh, you know, an atomic bomb would drop in a major city. They wanted to create exit routes out of the city, but it actually ended up building up the suburbs and created a real estate boom. I think that the kind of boom that we're going to create from this huge public investment into the, the biosciences and the life sciences is going to create incredible, an incredible boom downstream in terms of uh, genetics, genetic engineering, um, uh, 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 biosciences and, and, and health sciences. And so I, I do think that there are huge positive stories, um, that can come out of, of these negative, um, these negative stories because necessity is the mother of invention. Absolutely. Um, so there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So that is encouraging. And, you know, I could yes. spend hours picking your brain about the markets, but um, unfortunately we have to wind down. But I always like to end um, with a fun question or two. So I, I have to ask, you know, because you live in LA and Flyer CEO Brian Ross is also from that area and he loves in and out and taco trucks. Do you have a favorite little <laughs> spot to grab food in LA? <laughs> oh, well, I have tons of favorite spots to grab <laughs> in LA. <laughs> Top um, two. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I honestly, to be, to be perfectly honest, and I know this is going to sound like, you know, a, a bit pithy, the, there's this little Mexican lady who, who runs the, uh, the, the restaurant that's at the bottom of my building. And, you know, during these kinds of times the pandemic you, you sort of get to know people and our building was nearly empty during the pandemic and i went downstairs uh and often like i was one of only like five or six people who would come down um to get food uh but you know i i know that my business was meaningful to her and she makes it a darn good taco and so you know <laughs> uh, it, it became somewhat my comfort food so you know i think everybody has a place and a person like that um, but, you know, for me, that's that's my place. Absolutely. I love that. And as a fellow taco lover, I can absolutely appreciate that. Um, <laughs> Gina, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today and getting to know you a little bit better. So feel free to tell our listeners where they can find resources and learn more about Chintico Global um, and even hear you on your next segment on CNBC. Well, absolutely. I will be on CNBC. I am on CNBC every Friday uh, at about uh, 1.40 Eastern, 10.40 uh, uh, Pacific. Uh, so you can always find me there. You're always welcome to come to Chantico Global. Um, and we're launching Chantico Technology. And so as Chantico Technology gets up and off of the ground, you know, that's going to be really about bringing this work that we do for our, our very, very uh, big customers um, to advisors to help advisors really build their businesses. Uh, so, you know, there are lots of places to go to see what we're doing. So that'll definitely be our next podcast, obviously, all things technology. So I'll be tapping you for another one. 
be sure to subscribe to this podcast and all other on all major podcasting platforms and follow Flyer Financial Technologies on LinkedIn and Twitter at FlyerFT or visit our website at www.flyerft.com to learn more. Again, Gina, thank you so much. And to our listeners, have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to In The Money, the show that delivers advisors, asset managers, broker dealers, and other technology service providers the knowledge they need to navigate this industry. Don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Flyer Financial Technologies. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. 